Smartcast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show featuring Jason Zuck. Jason has been an intuitive psychic medium since 2004. This show will cover a variety of topics relating to spirituality, mediumship, self-improvement, and intuitive guidance. Whatever interests you, remember that we are all here to share and learn. Sit back and get ready to socialize with the social psychic. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity of having as a special guest this evening, Monk Nguyen Ru. He is the author of the recent book called Mad Monk Manifesto, a prescription for evolution, revolution, and global awakening. This topic is very intriguing to me. The idea that you could have someone who was born in New York City, studied at Yale, Cornell, and the University of California, and ordained as a Taoist monk in Guangzhou, China. Special guest for this evening approaches our world from his Taoist roots. He's a renowned Tai Chi master author, a novelist, a TV writer, and a PBS host. He's authored over 15 books, and with the significance of what we're going through in our modern society with global warming, our guest has some very strong opinions that will hopefully benefit our audience. He weighs in on the great issues of today and how we as humans are undermining our own existence, not just with our environment, by creating a toxic focus on self-interest that poisons our politics, lifestyle, parenting, technology, human interaction, and other areas of our lives. The Mad Monk Manifesto serves as a guidebook, which seeks to reveal all the ways that we as a society and our institutions can adapt and apply Taoist wisdom and practices to our daily lives. Using these basic principles, we can take cues from our Taoist philosophy, exist in a state of harmony with nature, aim to live more simply by being authentic and humble, staying calm, honor one's body, and live as peacefully as possible. The first section of our book looks at relaxing and rectifying, or the ways in which we can restore peace, calm, and introspection and sanity to ourselves. The second section takes aim at rebalancing our daily life through the lifestyle choices that we make. And the third section examines the wisdom of fostering community and deepening culture, which concerns how we treat one another. It's with great pleasure that I introduce our special guest to the show. Welcome to the show, Monk Nguyen Ro. I hope I say that correctly. I want to make sure I say it accurately. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you how to say it in a minute, but before I do, I want to thank you again for that eloquent introduction, which made me jealous, thinking that I wished I wrote <laughs> as well as you spoke. <laughs> so thanks thank again. You, thank you. 
So, you, so the the way to pronounce it is Yun Ro. So you could think of it as if it were phonetically spelled Y O O N, and then R O W like row a boat. Okay. Okay. Great. I will make sure I work on and that. It, mean, it means it has it has a meaning too. It means soft cloud. Oh wow! I love that. <laughs> I um I like your book a lot. And I know that this is not your first uh, book, and by no means. You're, you've written multiple books. What I wanted to ask you is I know from your background, because our audience is learning about you right now. You were born in New York, as I said during the introduction. You are a grandchild of Holocaust survivors, and you've made your own spiritual path all these years. I wanted to ask you if you could share with our audience what motivated you to pursue the path that you have and to write this most recent book? So this, this question uh, came up uh, just this past, uh, today is, uh, we're talking on a, on a Monday. It, it came up on a Saturday afternoon when I was signing books at my alma mater up in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University. Somebody asked me that and my octogenarian mother was in the, audience and I and somebody asked me that and I said well my mom of course um, and, and so of course I was I was trying to make my mom feel good but also there's there's quite a bit of truth to this and it's something that I've thought about because I've had a, a bunch of interviews lately and I keep people keep asking me the same question and I think you know the answer is that I I, I was born with a seeking gene which I know for sure didn't come from my dad. <laughs> so I know it came from my mom. My mom was a philosophy major. She was a student of the famous Jewish philosopher, Martin Buber, uh, who's, who's a, a well-known name in those circles. And she had a very rich and varied library uh, in our home in New York, uh, full of uh, philosophy from many different traditions and Origins, and among them were a number of uh, East Asian texts, uh, Chinese uh, and Japanese. And I think, you know, early on, I was. If you can imagine what a what a joy I must have been to raise for my parents, because I just questioned everything. I really believed <laughs> very little about about what I was being told about the world. And, you know, I mentioned my mom, but I think it's worth also saying that my father was a very, very famous, a world-famous, world-renowned cardiologist who took care of the people who ran the world when I was a child. Um, and, you know, that means kings and princes and captains of industry and Hollywood moguls and stars and, uh, you know, celebrities of all stripes, jet setters. and but But, you know, also academicians and artists and I was very very fortunate to have coming through the doors of our New York City apartment all these uh, you know what would be today considered you know people magazine a-listers and and what I noticed as a kid was that given the fact that all of those people had everything that most of us are taught we should aspire to have or be, that is uh, 
uh, wealth, uh, fame, good fortune, good looks, uh, influence, uh, and so on. What, what I noticed was that they were not a particularly happy bunch. And in addition to the fact that they probably got sick at a greater rate than the average, I also noticed that, you know, there were many of them who, whose lives didn't, didn't turn out well during the course of the time I knew them. So they might have gone to jail for tax evasion or murder. One I remember threw his wife down the stairs and killed her. Uh, their children didn't, didn't speak to them. They were estranged from their own families of origin. I mean, they were not, and of course, this isn't true of everyone. There were plenty of these people who were great, but, but there, were, there were a large percentage of folks who, you know, given the fact that they had every advantage that everyone, anyone could imaginably want, um, they, their lives sucked. And, and I, I remember thinking as a kid, wait, wait a minute, you know, if they're supposed to be and have everything that I want, how come they're, they're so unhappy? How come things don't turn out well? And if that's not true, in other words, if, if, if I guess we shouldn't all want to be those people, what other, what other lies or what other deceptions uh, am I being told and about what other subjects? What about religion? What about politics? What about social contracts? What about economics? All of it. So, you know, I, I, I took a jaundiced eye, I turned a jaundiced eye to many, many aspects of the life I was being told I should accept. And I began questioning. And then I guess as one final piece of this puzzle, I should give nine bows to uh, David Carradine, the actor uh, who passed away just a few years ago. Um, because in the 1970s and 80s, I guess it was early, maybe uh, I don't remember the exact year anymore, he was in a television show called Kung Fu. And there was a lot okay. of press at the time. Yeah, there was a lot of press at the time that you know, Bruce Lee should have been given that role. The Carradine's uh, uh, physical antics were execrable and so on. And all of that was probably true and right. But at the same time, that show portrayed um, a mythical, uh, fictional, and mystical life of monks in the Shaolin Temple in China. And while everybody else was hooting and hollering over Carradine kicking butt, I was fascinated by those robed guys, his teachers, who seemed to glide through life with such equanimity and poise. And they were butt kickers themselves, par excellence. But I remember one of them was blind and, you know, he could, he could still hear a cricket break wind at a hundred paces and, you know, handle 10 attackers. But the most remarkable thing about him was how calm and happy he was all the time. So I think as a kid, that image, you know, was burned into my head. I don't want to say that at 10 years old, I knew I wanted to become a monk, but I do want to say that, that, these various influences contributing contributed to me suspecting that there was another path that could be taken through life that did not involve so much of what I was seeing growing up uh, in New York City in those days. I actually um, grew up outside of New York myself, but in northern New Jersey in Bergen County. So the area, I didn't live in the city itself, but I lived close enough that I can kind of a point of reference from when you discuss growing up, you know, in that part of the country, especially. And having unique insight. It sounds like you had very unique insight through your uh, 
father's role as a cardiac surgeon uh, to very interesting people and intriguing people from various strands of our society. Um, I think that's interesting. That's very interesting. I, I, what you've mentioned, and I think it's very interesting to state, I think there's a resurgence and I say this on almost all my episodes, actually, but I feel like we're in a renaissance right now where people are looking for answers to their questions about who we are, why are we here, what are we dealing with, our greatest problems in the future, such as global warming as one of them, major issues. Um, I find your themes of your book, they really do fall in line with the, the renaissance that we're dealing with right now, where people are trying to find something to uh, expose themselves to and understand and learn about something that could help with a paradigm shift. And I feel like your, 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 you know, this particular book, in my opinion, um, does a great service in helping people look at the world from a different set of lenses where you could actually approach it from the Taoist point of view in helping to – I think one of the lines in your introduction talks about with, with 7 billion people on our planet, if you took 7 billion people and taught them how to approach the world – from, uh, you know, from a, a more uh, being in harmony with nature, for example, and not being so self-inspired, but actually having greater responsibility with our relationship with our planet, we could actually effectuate real change in probably a short amount of time. Would that be an accurate statement concerning the Mad Monk Manifesto and your findings in it? So I think it's, it's exactly right. Um, I had a conversation with one of my students recently who was uh, uh, in the military and in law enforcement and actually a very decorated officer. And um, he, he was chastising me for my concern about gas mileage in my car. I have a car that I like to drive. Uh, and it's a modest car, but, it, you know, it, it's the... Uh, it doesn't do very well on gas. It's fun to drive, but it's, it's a gas thing. And I was thinking, you know, I really need to do something about that. And I need to either drive less or trade it in and get something more fuel efficient, a Prius or an electric car or something. And he was laughing at me. He said, you know, if you were uh, in the military, you would realize that the amount of gasoline we use in our cars is nothing. You want to see waste you should see what it takes to power a, a, a destroyer or what a, what a, you know, an attack a helicopter uses or a jet plane. What we use in our cars, you know, is a drop in the bucket in comparison to the vast amounts of waste that are being used by those things, not to mention cruise ships and so on. And, and I said, you know, I, I get that. I, I said, I'm not, I'm not condoning or recommending that people go on cruises or that we build more military ships that guzzle fuel. But what I am saying is that if everybody went from a car that got 17 or 18 miles to the gallon to one that got 60, like a Toyota Prius or something, or a better yet, an electric car, then you, you take that effect and you multiply it just here in the United States by whatever the number is, I, I guess I don't know the number, but let's guess it's 350 million vehicles. But now all of a sudden, you know, a little gas savings of a few gallons every week or every day is, is now something of significance because 
we've multiplied it by 350 million. So, you know, this principle is, is one of the two major principles of Mad Monk Manifesto. The other, the other principle is this idea, and, and you gave a, a, a very gracious and accurate description of how the book is structured, which is, you know, to begin with how we change ourselves and then continue on to how we change society and the environment around us. And the second, the, the scriptor of that is to think about dropping a, a stone into a pond and watching the ripples go out from the center of the impact. So for example, if one member, if, if we decide, for example, to become vegan and everybody else in our family, let's say we all get together around Thanksgiving and everybody's enjoying turkey and, and we're eating a, a vegetarian loaf of some kind or faux turkey and everybody laughs at us. Uh, and then the next year, you know, we gather once again as a family and maybe people hadn't seen each other in a year. And all of a sudden, somebody knows a boy, you know, that, that guy became vegan. He's lost 40 pounds. Man, he looks good. And geez, you know, when you talk to him, his eyes are bright and his mind is sharp. And you see the way he gets off the couch and the rest of us are sort of lolling around and he springs up to help do the dishes and he's carrying out the trash. And where does that guy get all that energy? And then so, so maybe just one other member, let's say you have a dozen people for the family gathering, maybe, maybe just one other person goes, you know, I'd like to feel like that. I'd like to look like that. She looks great or he looks great. And so maybe, maybe I could try that. And so maybe for, you know, they begin a process of changing their diet. Maybe they stop eating meat. Maybe they cut out sugar or dairy or, you know, maybe they make step-by-step adjustments to a vegan lifestyle. And now you've got two people in your family who are going to live longer, look better, be healthier and contribute to less suffering in the world. I mean, you know, so, so this is a very, it's not a very complicated uh, process. Um, it, it may be complex and it may be a large process if we look at the world as a whole, but look at step by step. It's a straightforward business. We make some changes, we, you know, in the way we view ourselves and the way we exercise and the way we eat the way we treat others, the way we treat our, our environment. And those effects, that, those little ripples spread out from us to the world around us. And that, that's what the book is all about. I really like that concept and applying it on a global level, macro level sounds phenomenal. I want to ask you, because one of the topics you raise, and I think it's very timely, especially with what we're dealing with right now, is the idea of the sixth great the sixth great extinction, and I want to see if you could explain that to our audience as you discuss it in your book. Yeah, so it's um, it's a very powerful phenomenon. It's not an idea; it's, it's an event. So it's it's an observation, I suppose you could say. The name sixth great extinction is something that was given to uh, given by a scientist, or, or there's a woman who wrote a book by that name. She may be the original person who coined the, the phrase. But um, so the notion is that during the course of the history of life on earth, there have been five times in the fossil record. So going back billions of years to the, to the formation of this hot floating you know, rock that we call earth, there have been five times when there has been a sudden 
and dramatic loss of biodiversity on the planet, planet-wide. Uh, and these, this five loss of biodiversity simply means that, you know, where there might have been, just, just for the sake of conversation, of course, these aren't the real numbers, but let's say that, that you know, that there were a million species, there are far more than that, but let's say there were a million species at one time in history, and then something happened. So, you know, maybe there was a change in the magnetic poles, uh, which changed our atmosphere, changed our weather, and uh, many, many species of animals froze or cooked and didn't survive. So in a relatively short period of time, from a geological perspective, uh, you know, just a few minutes of geologic time, the Earth suddenly lost uh, a huge percentage of the life that it previously featured. Uh, so some another common, uh, another widely accepted cause for one of those five uh, cataclysms globally to life on Earth was an asteroid impact, which hit the Earth so hard, it was such a big rock, it hit the Earth so hard that it raised a dust cloud, which was distributed around the atmosphere. And it changed the temperature on Earth so that so many things that were enjoying a nice warm climate just died off. And that happened very quickly. The asteroid hit, boom, boom. Cloud came up, got cold, everything died. So that was another one of these extinctions. And, th and there, have been, there have been three others. We're now in the midst of one which is sadly the sixth grade extinction being caused by human beings. So it's being caused by the activity that we human beings uh, uh, create and do. So, for example, one thing is the fact that we are so overpopulated. So, you know, human beings, and I really hate to use this metaphor because it's ugly um, and rough, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's accurate. You know, the human race acts like a cancer on the face of the superorganism of our planet. Why do I say such a terrible thing? Well, uh, like a cancer... We are growing without limits, uh, far beyond the normal rate of growth. Like a cancer, we are creating toxins which are destroying our host, uh, the earth. Uh, like a cancer, we are outcompeting and killing other living things, like a cancer does to normal, healthy cells in the body. And um, like a cancer, we will eventually kill our host. So we are creating this sixth grade extinction by the chemicals we use, by the way we destroy the actual physical earth, that is polluting the oceans with plastics, chopping down all the uh, rainforest, uh, destroying the ocean phytoplankton, which create oxygen for us. I mean, we're signing our own death warrants as well as killing everything else because when there's no oxygen to breathe because we've killed all the plants that produce it, we're all going to just suffocate and die. So, you know, there's this highly irrational activity is going on globally where we're treating Mother Earth like a toilet. And the result of it will be not the end of Earth. Earth will, will persist as a moribund rock floating in space without life on it. But we will not persist. So that's what the sixth grade extinction refers to.
Well, and not only that, if you think about we're one, we're one species on this planet. We're one, one part of the uh, animal kingdom. And to think that we as mammals have the ability to potentially destroy all other life, it, it says a lot about our lack of respect for our natural surroundings and, and being citizens of our planet, which is very frustrating to think that when you gave that example earlier that there was someone who, who said, hey, look, you're trying to reduce the mileage on your car, but what about our military hardware and the gas that's guzzled through that? And it, 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 goes, hand in, it goes hand in hand with, I would call it the dysfunction of our current state of politics, and, and not to get too deep about that, but I know it's something that, is, that you're very passionate about as well, is trying to find the qualities of a great leader. And we all know if we try to pull in our minds what would what would what qualities those would be if they you know if they fit within a Gandhi or you know Nelson Mandela's hundredth birthdays just passed his anniversary or if you look at other historical figures I um I want to ask you based on your experience and, and what you've studied and, and what you believe do you think that we will see great leaders rise to the occasion in the near future to help save our planet in the state of flux that we're currently in right now? Okay, so there was a lot there. Let me try to unpack it. The no first problem. thing no is let's finish, off, let's finish off the, um, the idea of why we other living creatures so poorly. Um, so there is uh, a root that is beyond just greed and self-gratification. Uh, you know, just the desire to, to have a piece of property or to put something in our mouth that we need not do. Um, there, there is a religious underpinning to the idea, uh, this comes from the Abrahamic faiths, uh, there is an idea, it doesn't really exist in the West, I'm sorry, it doesn't exist in the East um, in this form, and, and the East has other issues, but not this one, um, so there's the idea that, you know, a, a God that we concoct as a legendary figure and a mythology to help us understand the world and feel good about our life and about what happens after we die. That, that God, in the case of the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, you know, was a, was a, I think it was a Babylonian storm God originally, um, one of uh, hundreds of gods on the pantheon. So that God said to us in, in some book that people wrote, a novel that we call the Bible, that, that the, the earth is here for us. It's our playground. It's a, we have hegemony over the natural world. We're at the top of it, and everything else is below it, and it's here for us. So if you pursue that line of thinking, then over thousands of years, you, become, uh, you suffer from this disconnection from nature because you think that, you know, we're something different from all the other living things. And therefore we don't share anything with them and we're not responsible. They are, you know, there are playthings, our toys, there are resources. Just calling them resources is already demeaning, uh, inaccurate, because of course they're not resources for us. They're, they're, they're own living things. But worst, I think, it creates this sense of connection between human beings and nature. And that sense of disconnection between us and the rest of the natural world leads to senses of disconnection between 
each of us and each other. It becomes a social and cultural problem, and we see it at its apex um, with the birth of virtual reality, where people who are so disenfranchised and so their, their needs are not being met, they're so alienated in their own lives. They're lonely, they're not uh, feeling that they're fruitful or making a contribution, they're not feeling appreciated, they're not feeling validated or valued in their work and so on. But, you know, that we begin to turn to the digital world. And, you know, as soon as virtual reality games and so on, which are already, you know, hugely, hugely popular and already command the time and attention of so many young men primarily, as soon as that technology gets one step better, when we have virtual sex so we can have fantasy partners and we have machines that make us feel uh, what we would feel during the real act and all that stuff, then we enter this, you know, sort of matrix-like world where the earth no longer matters because all of our urges and ambitions and dreams are being satisfied and provided by this faux world and the real world around us just becomes one enormous burning garbage pit, which is what large swaths of China look like now. So, you know, this is a very, very perilous road. And uh, there's a lot more to say about it, but let me get to your question about leadership. In the Taoist tradition, the worst leader is, is the one who is feared. Slightly better is the one who is hated. Slightly better than that is the one who is loved. But the best leader is the one who is unknown, whose name and identity are unknown to the general populace, who manages the business of governance with such a light and deft touch that people actually think that all this wonderful unfolding in their lives, all this beautiful functioning of infrastructure is happening because of their individual efforts. And they don't even know that the ship has a captain, much less know his name. So that's the Taoist vision of the best leader. And you can contrast that to the reality that we see in the rise of tyranny around the world, here in the U.S. and in China and in Russia and other places. So as to whether, you know, at some point we will see more leaders that hit that mold, all I can say is I hope so. We definitely need to <laughs> have a better leadership, especially when it comes to our responsibilities globally and with the environment. One of the things I want to ask you about, looking at your book, Mad Monk Manifesto, was I believe there's a section in, that you equate sitting as the new smoking. And I wanted to ask you what recommend – well, first off, uh, I would like you to discuss that a little with our audience because most people have sedentary jobs, office jobs where they'll sit a good part of their day. But um, more importantly, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that you recommend we can do on a daily basis that would help contradict that to improve our own personal health? So the idea that sitting is the new smoking is, I mean, it's kind of a catchy turn of phrase. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's a lot more profound than that. Um, the human body was simply not meant 
to sit all day. The human body was constructed uh, through, you know, millions of years of evolution to move constantly, to be walking great distances at a modest pace, um, not running, not jogging, just walking bipedally uh, across the African savanna. And I mean, that's where we came into being in the form that we still have. And, and of course, there were no chairs in the savanna. So when we sat, we crouched, which is the way people still sit widely all over Asia um, if they're not in developed countries where they've grown too fat to do it. But, you know, people who just crouch and sit on their haunches, and, and I've been in many Asian countries where people are all along the road and they're playing games or they're, they're cards or they're talking and chatting with their families or they're eating in, in that crouching position, sitting deep into their hips. And for them, you know, that, of course, involves muscular effort because you're holding yourself up. That, that was what sitting was. The, the whole business of chairs is a very modern phenomenon when it comes to human history. And it doesn't do us any good. So the inactivity itself is murder on the cardiovascular system. It has a great, uh, takes a great toll on uh, our joints and our muscles. And, and so, you know, at the very least we can do, if we must have a job where we sit a lot, at a computer, for example, is to set a timer on the computer so that at every 20 minutes, not every two hours, as I've heard some people recommend, but every 20 minutes, uh, you know, some kind of little alarm goes off and tells us to stand up, stretch, um, you know, pick up our knees, pick up our heels, uh, walk around the office, come back and sit down and do a little more. But every 20 minutes, not every two hours, not, not three times a day, every 20 minutes. And, and of course, you know, doing some uh, type of Qigong exercise, we can talk about what that is in a moment, um, doing some kind of breath exercise, some kind of stretching, that, that will help at least with the musculoskeletal stuff. Um, but for the cardiovascular uh, antidote to this sedentary lifestyle, we must do one hour of cardiovascular exercise a day. So these, this number, one hour, has been substantiated and, and reinforced by a spate of scientific studies in just in the last six months at the time of our conversation. So we used to think, you know, 20 minutes was enough or three times a week. And no, 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 none of that. It's actually an hour. So what does that mean? Well, it could be like, for example, if you live in New York, um, or, or in that area where we both grew up, um, you know, when I was a kid, I, I walked several miles to school every day. So that definitely counts. Right? So walking to and from school, that did it. Um, you know, taking the subway or a bus probably wouldn't do it. But, but you know, Walking around the city was great exercise. Actually, uh, I miss that very much. Uh, I live in a place now where, you know, driving is de rigueur, so I have to make special efforts in my martial arts training and when I go to the gym to uh, get extra cardio because, I, I, you know, as a writer, I also sit at the desk a lot. So we need, we need a significant amount more exercise than people realize. And if people hear this and say, well, you know, that's nice, but my, you know, my lifestyle, there's no way I can do that. I got kids, I got to cook, da, 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 da. Um, you know, then just ask yourself, do you, you know, do you want to be around for your kids a little bit later in life or do you want to be dead? Um, you know, these are, these are changes we can make. If you 
are spending, as an average American does, five or six or seven hours watching TV every day, throw your TV out and get a treadmill. If you live someplace uh, where it's cold and you can't exercise outside, get a stationary bike. Not very expensive. Uh, and instead of, instead of uh, sitting around watching TV, read a book while you, ride your, while you use your machine. If you must watch television, for goodness sake, don't do it sitting down. Stand up and do it. Work on a treadmill while you're watching it. If the TV is on, you should be moving. If you're not moving, turn it off. These are simple rules. They're not hard to do. It's just most people aren't willing to do them. And it's so basic if you think about it, just incorporating uh, healthier behaviors compared to one that is toxic to ourselves, which I fall prey to sitting a lot during my daily routine with my day job. And it's something that just needs to be incorporated, not a New Year's resolution, but at any point in your life when you feel like you really need to make that difference, if it's for your children, your grandchildren, or for other reasons. It feels like it's, it sounds like it's a very important commitment to make to yourself because that's one way of being able to rebalance yourself in terms of trying to approach life um, to help yourself understand that the body, from your explanation, the body itself has evolved from certain metrics and we need to recognize that in order to live the way we've evolved um you know standing up and, and being more active rather than being some you know couch potato <laughs> um i, I want to ask you about your book because one of the things returning back to the book in terms of the subject matter when you talk about relaxing and rectifying in your chapter one i, I wanted to ask if you could explain to our audience the general concept of when when you're discussing the self um, being able to relax and rectify that. My interpretation of, of relax means that the body's in a state of harmony or that it's a healthy state. Would that be accurate based on uh, your understanding? So the word rectify means just to fix what's wrong. Uh, so like, you know, we say we want to rectify a situation, you know, then we fix what's wrong. Um, if, if we're running a company and, um, you know, all of a sudden we have uh, orders we can't fill, we rectify it by, you know, increasing our manufacturer or supply. In the body, we rectify if, if you know, we've developed weaknesses in certain muscles or uh, we have bad postural habits or even uh, what we just got done discussing about how we spend our time sitting and so on. Uh, so here, here's a really... Um, I'll discuss relaxation in one second, but here's a really concrete example. I'm speaking to you from my telephone for this interview. And instead of uh, lying on the couch while we're talking about it uh, or sitting at my desk, uh, I'm wearing a pair of uh, Bluetooth headphones, which allow me to get up and walk around. So I'm simply making circles around my room and I'm flexing my shoulders, and I'm circling my arms, and I'm kicking out my legs, and I'm doing some little bending, just so that while we're talking, I, I just don't sit. And this is just such a simple thing. I also have what's called a standing desk, so that when I write, uh, I, I'm standing up writing, not sitting down. Relaxation means a very specific thing in the context of Taoist practice. And it does not mean kicking up your feet with a bowl of Doritos and a beer for the ball game. That's not the kind of relaxation we're talking about. So we're talking about utilizing the structure of the body. It's 
the structure of your bones that the skeleton looks like in such a way that you can relax all your muscles and let the bones do the work. Stack them up like the skeleton that used to hang in your science classroom when you were a kid. Um, used to hang there from a nail or a little hook in the, in the head. Might have been a real skeleton, might have been a nylon one, but either way, it was dangling there with all the bones lined up because it was being lifted from the crown point and dangling there. And we can do a similar thing. We can sort of tuck our chin back and imagine that we're being lifted by a string up to heaven and it's holding us attached to the middle of the top of our head. And then we just let go of all the muscular tension in the other parts of our body until we're just staying there with minimal effort. So I hope that, that gives you a little bit of visual. Definitely. Absolutely. What do you attribute within yourself, I should say, that others in our audience can learn from you of ways to deepen your ability to meditate? I've worked with people when I'm an intuitive psychic medium, also an attorney by day, but there's always people who ask me, I can't seem to meditate. My mind's always racing. No matter what I try to do, I'm never able to get in that right frame of mind to let myself go and to meditate. And I always recommend that there's different approaches for each individual person. Um, I wanted to see what your take was uh, in terms of meditating and any, any type of, um, I guess I'd say, any advice, anybody in the audience who wishes to try to increase their ability to meditate during their daily routines, but they just can't seem to get there. Okay, so two things. First, let's just be clear for a moment about what meditation is, because many people have a wrong idea about that very basic fact. So when we talk about meditation, all we're talking about is exercise for the mind, certain kind of exercise for the mind. And we understand the concept of exercise for the body. And in fact, you know, people who say, look, you know, I, I hate, I hate exercise. I say, really, you like ping pong? Oh, I love ping pong. I say, good. Okay. <laughs> so every day, every day, get a friend and play ping pong for 45 minutes. But, you know, do it with vigor, jump around a little bit, you know, smash that ping pong ball, run for it, leap for it, reach for it. Um, uh, you like to ride a bike? I, I like to ride a bike, but I hate to exercise. Okay, ride your bike. Um, I, I hate riding a bike, walk. Uh, you know, so you don't have to play football. You don't have to become an Olympic swimmer. You don't have to uh, run a marathon. You, you just have to move the body in. The, the best exercise is the one you like and the one that you will do. So whether you're playing ball or uh, doing uh, tennis with your friends or taking a brisk walk around the neighborhood with your dog, any kind of exercise that you like is the one that that's, that's, has the most value because it's the one you'll do. So ditto for meditation. Meditation is just exercise for the mind. There are, there's a smorgasbord of, of meditation techniques available. I, of course, am partial to the Taoist uh, meditation techniques, but there are, and some of those are in Mad Monk Manifesto, but there are many other uh, worthwhile forms of meditation. Now, to the question of, you know, why can't you stand still or why can't you sit still or why can't you quiet your mind? These questions arise when somebody does not know what meditation is. So people sometimes hear that, you know, you want to quiet your mind and, you know, get rid of, banish all your thoughts. This, uh, let me tell you, when you banish your thoughts, that only happens one time in your life, when you die. 
when you're dead, you don't have thoughts. Otherwise, your mind is doing something. So the question is, what can we give the mind to do while we're sitting or standing or lying quietly in meditative practice? And the answer is that there are many, many, many different things you can do with your mind. You can count your breaths. You can um, pay attention to sensations in your body. You can repeat a mantra, which is a word that was given to you by a teacher. Uh, there are, you can listen to certain kinds of meditation music. Um, there are many, many different things that we can do to give the mind something to do. If you don't give the mind something to do, and you think that meditation means just sitting there trying to think about nothing, then you are bound to fail because nobody can actually do that. There's no such thing as thinking about nothing. So, you know, unless it's a meditation on emptiness. <laughs> so, so if people understand, right? So if people understand that this business of feeling agitated and unable to sit still and they just do that for a couple of minutes and then they think they have failed. I say, wait, 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 no, no, no. You succeeded. You just meditated for two minutes. That's great. That means that for those two minutes, you were, you were aware of what your mind was doing. You were trying to guide it to do something else. You found it uncomfortable. You discovered your own uh, limitations and weak points in, this, in that particular practice, and you are on the path. So I tell people to buy an old-fashioned egg timer. There's still some available from hardware stores or online. And, you know, they have a dial that, you know, runs up to 20 minutes or something. And, you know, you turn the dial and then, you know, it counts down for you. There are also some digital countdown devices that people use for sports. I like to have invest for a few dollars, either inexpensive things. But I like to do invest in one of those props or crutches as opposed to using your phone to time yourself or your watch. Because it means that you, you know, you've got enough commitment to buy a device that actually you use only for this. And so I say on day one, you set this timer for 60 seconds. And you just stand or sit or lie there for 60 seconds with your eyes closed, paying attention to your breath. And then on day two, you add a minute. And day three, you add another minute. And of course, by the end of a month, you're doing 30 minutes of meditation, which is a good amount. So it's not, uh, it's not voodoo. It's a fairly straightforward thing to do. It's just that people have incorrect expectations on it. I like the way you... Uh provided that, that example of building upon it a little every day. And after 30 days, you'll have a 30 minute meditation for people who train for marathons. That's how they develop their own strategy of distance running. I do like the way that that would be something that I feel like our audience could really gravitate towards. Even, you know, the, the most resistant people, the people who have the most uh, inattentive brains, the, the I shouldn't say inattentive brains, I should say inattentive brain habits. Even people, because, you know, we're all trained by the hyperlink to have a small attention span. I, I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I would disappear into a book for days on end. My attention span was ferocious. 
I would sit there and finish, you know, a 600-page science fiction novel or something. And, and you know, dinner time would come and go, and I was just so engrossed in that story. I, I didn't care about anything else. Now, you know, two minutes, and you're up checking your phone. Hey, hello, what have I... Uh, What's going on? Oh, a little, little ding, a little sound on my computer. Got to check this. Got to check my inbox. Got to check my messages. Got to check my social media. We are being trained for this. And by the way, I hate to say this again because it sounds rough, like I said, about human beings being a cancer on the planet. But we are being trained and entrained for this kind of short attention span because there are many, many powers that be in our world who would rather we did not think deeply. And that means about anything. Once you start to slow down and think deeply, you realize all the things that are wrong with the world around you, with what you're being told or asked to spend money on, with the realities like, um, you know, destruction of nature that you're being asked to accept um, but but you can't come to any of those conclusions without thinking deeply. And you can't think deeply if you're responding to every email that comes in and rushing around like a headless chicken from one appointment to the other or sitting in traffic. So people who make money from us, and we can talk about dying in a minute, but people who make money from us have a story to sell us, just like the vacuum cleaner guy that used to come to your door and tell you why you needed to buy a an expensive vacuum cleaner or, or a set of encyclopedias or something. People have their agendas and we are all living like fish in a sea of those agendas and like fish who don't recognize the water, we don't see it. And until you start paying attention to your breathing, settling your mind, deepening your attention span, lengthening your attention span and deepening your attention, you're not going to notice. In terms of your book, when you talk about in chapter three, fostering community, deepening culture, I know that you have that discussion in the context of humility, compassion, frugality, having your ability to support others, kind of like the perfect definition or quality of a great leader under Taoism. Is, is I would, when you gave that definition earlier, I thought of someone who's selfless and doesn't seek the spotlight, rather behind the scenes, likes to do things and not even be noticed for it. I wanted to ask you in reference to our way of further deepening our, our bonds with each other, supporting each other, what recommendations would you make for our audience to actually help in their own way to bring that forth and, and help make it so that society becomes more open to receiving that type of a message? Turn off reality television and <laughs> go talk to your Absolutely. Go knock on your neighbor's door and say, is there anything I can do for you? Anything you need? How can I help you today? They, you know, they'll think you're a lunatic and they'll slam the door in your face. <laughs> but, after you've done it three, but after you've done it three or four times, you know, down, down here in, in South Florida where I live, you'd be lucky if they don't shoot you. But after three or four times, uh, uh, then, you know, maybe they'll, they'll start to hear you. Um, but, but it doesn't really matter what they do, what, what the other people do in response to what you do. Um, and this is a core tenet, not only of Tao's thinking, but it's a core answer to the question you're asking me. We can only control ourselves. 
We can never, ever control anybody else or any other outcome beyond our own actions. So, for example, I write this book, Mad Monk Manifesto, because I am, there's a wonderful, um, there's a wonderful bumper sticker that I've seen, which says, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. So, you know, a monk is supposed to be a person of equanimity, and I do my best in that regard. I have decades of training and tools given to me to keep my cool about things. But that doesn't mean that, you know, Taoism also has a long history of political activism associated with it. Just because you keep your cool doesn't mean you shut your mouth. So if you see something that needs to be said, you say it. You see something that needs to be done, you do it. But you don't do it waiting for applause. You do it because it's the right thing to do and it's because it needs doing. So in our celebrity culture, you know, the celebrity worship thing is kind of a disease we have in this culture. And it's, it's a very deep sickness imagining that, you know, you want to be or you want to emulate or adulate some character on television who has never contributed anything to anybody uh, other than their own narcissistic pursuits. But you think that, you know, you want to follow those people. You want to know what they do while the firemen and policemen and scientific researchers who are trying to find a cure for cancer or trying to save the elephants or you know, people who are actually out there doing things in the world that matter are largely unknown to us. If you ask the average person, how many, how many uh, like uh, Nobel laureate cancer researchers do you know? How many names do you know? How many people do you know who are working to save forests or oceans? Uh, you're going to get a blank look, but if you ask them, you know, how many TV celebrities can you name? You get a list. So, you know, how, how did that happen? How did we let our standards of what is important become so bizarrely perverted? I guess, I, I you know, if I would have to be a, a sociologist or an historian to be able to figure, answer that question well, but I guess it doesn't really matter how we got here. It's time to let it go. Makes sense. When I heard your answer, I was thinking people who deal with social anxiety issues or people who have situations where they have a really hard time being able to get out and talk to others in society. If you were to apply that knock on your neighbor's door and ask, how can I help you today? Or if the neighbor does that for you. And if that was actually something that was practiced across the board as a standard, I feel like a lot of the things that we as individuals in our society deal with in our modern era with social media and everything else, wouldn't be such a, an obstacle to us. I think we would actually be able to flow around that or, or figure out ways to har harmonize ourselves with each other, and not only internally, but as a society overall. I, um, I think what I like, and I, I was looking at something from, I think it was your chapter about government and power, and you, you, one of the ways you phrased it according to Taoism was if, if you were to say, how do we, how do we create such a momentous change and uh, approach it? And it was about trying to develop constituencies and looking at the world to, to effectuate change at the beginning of that chapter. You said the Taoist answer is that we don't meet obstacles head on, but rather flow around them. I wanted to see if you could explain that to us as we're coming to the close of the show. How would you approach an obstacle by flowing around it rather than meeting it head on? So the archetypal 
answer to this question is to be more like water. So if you think what water does and how it behaves in the world, first of all, you know, it seeks the lowest places. So if it begins in the sky, it ends up on the ground. If it starts as melting snow on the top of a mountain, it ends up in the dirt of the valley. It always flows to the lowest places where even people don't want to go, like sewers, right? Water is always looking for the lowest place it can flow to because that is where it does the most good. So what does water do in flowing to do the most good? It goes into the ground and and nourishes plants and it creates life from underneath. How does water meet an obstacle? When water flows down a mountain or down a river and it hits a rock, what does it do? It doesn't go up to the rock and keep banging its head against the rock going, let me through, you bugger rock. Let me through. It simply flows around it so that there is no force applied against force. And But it does it in a very interesting way because it's not just no force against force. Water doesn't yield either. It doesn't go back up the mountain or back up the river when it meets the dam. It finds another way around. And if you ask me, what is the prescription? I will give you the metaphor that I use with my students. I say, we have three doors. Door number one is force against force. If somebody punches you, you punch them back. Door number two is yielding. Somebody punches you, you grovel on the ground and say, oh, great and glorious puncher. You're right in what you did and what you said about me being a miserable creature. I'm so happy to be down here licking your boots. May I, may I spit shine your windshield for you or clean your hubcaps or, or clean your toilets for you? Is there any other abuse you would like to heap upon me? Right, so... So neither door number one, the force against force, nor door number two, the yielding and groveling, is desirable. What we want is door number three. We want a third solution to conflict always. What is that third solution? That is up to us to figure out. And we have to use our intelligence and our creativity and our experience to figure it out uniquely to each circumstance. Only thing we know about door number three is that it is not door number one and it is not door number two. I like that. And I also like the idea of custom, tail- custom tailoring your, your, your approach to the, to the facts and the circumstances of the situation so that you can come up with hopefully the best approach possible. I know we're running towards the end of our show. I did want to ask you, if anyone in our audience aside from picking up your book, of course, The Mad Monk Manifesto, would like to uh, learn more about you. I, I would like to have you share your website with our audience so that they can um, sure. go on your site. And if you'd like to share of that at this time, that'd be great. So Thank I'm, you. I'm, uh, the only social media I'm, I'm on is uh, Twitter, where I am at Monk Yunro. That's M-O-N-K, Monk. Y-U-N, as in Nancy, R-O-U, Monkyunro, at Monkyunro. My website is monkyunro.com. Very simple to remember. If you can't manage that spelling or you forget it, 
I also have another URL which will lead to my site, and that is playtaichi.com. So P-L-A-Y-T-A-I-C-H-I. And the website has all kinds of resources about my books and about my teaching uh, and about Mad Monk Manifesto, which I hope everyone will please go out and buy, if only to keep it in your hip pocket or your purse or your knapsack or your briefcase as a utopian guide to how life could really be and how to make the best decisions. Absolutely. I encourage our audience to definitely check out your book. I think it'll be an eye-opener and a great read and also a guide as well. I want to thank you for coming on our show this evening and sharing your information with us and and your philosophy and just everything else and and really enlightening us with this concept and and the concepts raised in your book. And hopefully our audience will um, pursue this further and and look into your writings more because I think they could really be – they not only shift their paradigms, but learn a lot and, enlight- and get enlightened as well. So thank you for coming on this evening. Thank you, Jason, for the opportunity and the conversation. I appreciate it. It was a great honor, sir. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. I just want to thank everyone for tuning into this episode. Monk Renro was phenomenal in explaining Taoism and how it applies in the Mad Monk Manifesto. I think with anything that you look at as an alternate paradigm, how to approach the world in in terms of all the challenges we deal with on a daily basis between either our keeping our physical health in check, our mental health, um, our relationships with one another, our relationships with nature and the planet, the Mad Monk Manifesto approaches all those areas with Taoism and I think this is definitely something that if you are very interested in this topic area, you'll find very captivating and compelling. So check out the Mad Monk Manifesto. It is uh, number one on Amazon. It's by Mango Publishing. And I really appreciate Monk Ren Roe for coming on this evening and sharing his information with us. Thank you so much for uh, listening to our show. We will have more episodes going forward as well. If you have any questions, you can reach me directly at info at the letter D, socialpsychicradio.com. You can also check out our website, www.thelettersocialpsychicradio.com, or our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and other locations. I'm also pleased to announce that our show has been picked up by radio.com, and I welcome anyone from radio.com to our audience. And thank you for checking us out and look forward to having any input that you'd like to offer to us about our episodes, our programming, our guests. Feel free to check out our website and our information and don't hesitate to contact me directly with any questions or if you have ideas for an episode as well. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook, and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. 
At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of Her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electric acid. Electric acid.